Well, if you wanted to, you could open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes or to Ecclesi- to Ephesians uh, one and verse two. Almost every letter in the New Testament begins something like this. It says in Ephesians 1 and verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1, 1.3, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 2, Galatians 1 and verse 3, Philippians 1 and verse 2, Second Thessalonians, Philemon verse 3 are all exactly the same. Again, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Many other verses are similar. Colossians 1 and verse 2 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1 says, Grace to you and peace. First and 2 Timothy say, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1.4 says, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And Revelation 1 and verse 4 says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. A few years ago, I was studying one of these passages and the word grace in particular, and one commentary called grace, quote, the gospel in one word. Another called it the heart of the gospel message. And so today we're going to look at grace and peace. We're going to look at the heart of the gospel, the, the two words that teach us the gospel better than any other. There's nothing more important for us than to understand and believe the gospel. The next most important thing would be able for us to be able to explain and proclaim the gospel. And whenever I begin pastoral care, one of the first things that I ask, and many of you have had me ask this of you, is something along the lines of, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? How would you explain the gospel to an unbeliever? What scriptures would you use? Of course, the word gospel means good news. And I love it that we give visitors a a book, and I forgot to announce it again this morning, but if you're a visitor with us, we like to give you a little book called Good News, and that little book just explains the gospel. It's messages from John MacArthur that explain the gospel, and so if you're visiting with us this morning, I would love to get one of those into your hand after the service. But we, it's just, it's so important for us to proclaim and, and get the message of the gospel out. In large part, our mission as a local church is to spread the good news of the gospel to the world. The good news is the news about salvation in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's the message about how we can be saved and why we need to be saved. It's the message about what we need to be saved from and what we are saved to. Knowing the gospel is so important because in order to be saved, you need to understand the gospel and you need to believe that message. If you don't know what the gospel message is, you cannot be saved. And so what is the gospel is an extremely important question. It's heaven or hell. It's life or death. It's eternal life or eternal death. Romans 1.16 tells us that the, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The gospel is God's power. It's God's saving power to everyone who believes. And so today we're going to focus on the gospel. If you're here and you haven't understood or believed the gospel, if you're not saved or if you're not sure if you are saved, there's nothing more important for you than to be able to understand and answer the question, what is the gospel? And if you're a believer and you are saved, well then praise God if you are, this, this question is important for you as well because the gospel is more than Christianity 101. It's more than a ticket to heaven. The gospel is really central to everything that it means to be a Christian. And so the gospel is not, not like a, a, a starting line that we run away from as we grow. It's more like the hub of the wheel. The gospel is central. It's the core of the Christian life. The gospel grows us as believers in assurance of our salvation. The gospel prepares us for eternity. The gospel empowers us to live like Christ in this world. The gospel equips us for good works so that we can serve God well while we live and, and build up rewards for heaven. The gospel protects us from the schemes of the devil. The gospel shows us the glory of God and our Savior and helps us to worship Him in ways that we never imagined before as He shows Himself to us and His glory in our salvation. Our mission is to make disciples of all nations, which means bringing them the gospel and then teaching them how to live it. And so today we're going to focus on the gospel and we're going to answer the question, what is the gospel? And we're going to do it by looking at these two words of greeting, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. What is it about grace and peace that they are the gospel in seed form? How do they summarize the good news of the gospel? And what I'm going to do is we're going to ask five questions about grace and peace that will help us to understand the gospel. So we're going to ask five questions, five simple questions that really answer that one question, what is the gospel? And so if you're taking notes this morning, it's five simple questions about grace and peace that will help us understand the gospel. Five simple questions about grace and peace that will help us answer that one question, what is the gospel? And the first question that we want to ask is just a very simple, and they, they really all are, what is grace 
and peace. What is grace and peace, number one? And doesn't the question itself just show you maybe how often we just skim over our Bibles when we read them? You know, I wonder how many of us could define the biblical words grace and peace without using a dictionary. Just right now, anyone want to come up and just give me a definition of grace and peace? I think we just often, even when we read the the beginning of all of these letters, we often just kind of skip past the first few verses when we read our Bibles. Sometimes it's good for us just to slow down and dig into the details, and we're going to try to do that today. The first word in the greeting that Paul and the other New Testament writers use so often is the word grace. Most often the writers of the New Testament begin their letters, grace to you. And again, Harold Honer called grace the gospel in one word. Commentator Clinton Arnold said, quote, Paul could choose no better word than grace to characterize the heart of the gospel message And in fact, the heart of his theology. For Paul, God's grace was the defining characteristic of the new covenant. End quote. And so what is grace? It's God's unmerited or undeserved or unearned favor. Grace is favor from God that you do not deserve and that you cannot earn. For God to be gracious to you means that he acts on your behalf, that he blesses you, that he, he favors you with blessings, that he, he looks on you with an attitude of approval. And we're talking here about the grace of God, God's grace, grace from God the Father. Anyone can be gracious, anyone can show favor, but we're thinking here about grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so grace is God's almighty, sorry, just God almighty. Grace is God almighty looking on you with an attitude of approval. Grace is the favor of the one who, according to Isaiah 40 and verse 12, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. We're talking here about the favor of the one who, according to Isaiah 40, 50 to verse 17, says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Grace is the favor of him who in Isaiah 40, 22 and 23 sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. We're talking about receiving favor from Isaiah forty twenty eight. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. 
And when this all-powerful God extends his grace to the undeserving, he does so in two ways. The primary way the New Testament speaks about grace is in what we call saving grace. Saving grace includes everything that God does and has done to save spiritually dead sinners, including the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live as our representative and to die on the cross for our sins. Grace includes saving uh, sinners in this way, opening our spiritual eyes to hear and understand the gospel. Saving grace includes granting repentance and faith to the lost, raising sinners to spiritual life and making us alive with Christ. All of this and more comes under saving grace. You can see saving grace in Ephesians 2, and I'll just read a few verses from there, and you could maybe just flip your Bible to that page if you want. But Ephesians 2.5 simply says there, by grace you have been saved. And again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The second way the New Testament speaks of God's grace is grace that enables and empowers believers to glorify God. We call this enabling grace. God's undeserved favor in empowering Christians by the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. We see this in 1 Corinthians 15.10 where Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And so by grace, by God's grace, Paul was empowered to labor for the gospel even above the other apostles. And so again, grace is God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor in saving sinners and in empowering believers. And because of grace, we can also have peace. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is part of salvation, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But for now, just note that salvation results in peace with God. Salvation is by grace, and it results in peace. And so what is peace? Well, I think we know what peace is. I think just even better than grace Peace is the absence of hostility. Peace is the presence of good relations. And another word is harmony. There's a few ways that peace is used in the New Testament. The first is relational peace. Relational peace is what we see in Romans 5.1, the passage that we just read. We're talking about peace with God, a relational peace with Him. If you have peace with God, it means that you and God are on good terms. Peace with God means all your sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Peace with God means you are justified, which means that God looks at you as though you were righteous in Christ. God counts you as having Jesus' righteousness. Peace means no more hostility between you and God. That's relational peace. 
Another type of peace, and we're, we're dealing just with God here, peace with God. Another type of peace is what I call here circumstantial peace. This is a peace in the midst of hostility. This is a, an internal peace in the midst of our day-to-day lives that comes from trusting God. And this peace is something that no one can take away from us. Jesus said in John 14.27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Then he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives us peace. He leaves it with us. He gives it to us and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This circumstantial peace is a result of peace with God. And so we have peace with God and then we have what we could call the peace of God. We must have peace with God before we can know the peace of God. As it says in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a peace which we can have in any circumstance. It's a peace that's even beyond understanding because God himself grants this peace to those who know him and trust him. And so when Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying so much more than just greetings. He wants the believers to have a deeper and richer understanding of and experience of God's blessings in their lives and of their peace with him and from him. Paul wants them to experience more fully God's undeserved favor in their salvation, as well as his favor in empowering them to live for him. Paul wants them to know what it means to be at peace with God and to have the peace of God. And this leads then into another important question, and that's going to be number two in our outline. Why do we need grace and peace? So we've seen what grace and peace are, but now we ask, why do we need grace and peace? Why do we need those two things? Why do we need unmerited favor? Why do we need saving grace? Why do we need peace with God? And the fact that we need these things implies something, doesn't it? It implies something about us. Isaiah 48, 22 describes it well. It says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And again, it's repeated almost the same, Isaiah 57, 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God says there is no peace for the wicked. The Lord, Yahweh, says there is no peace for the wicked. And we could turn that statement around this way and we could say that there is hostility between God and the wicked. If there's not peace, there's hostility. There's, there's enmity. Nobody is born into this world at peace with God. Our first father, Adam, rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. And through him, our entire race was corrupted by sin. Romans 5.19 says, By the one man's disobedience, that's speaking about Adam, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's sin made us sinners. We were born from him. We came through him. And sin makes us hostile to God. Sin is contrary 
to God. And so we were born dead, dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. We were born into this world as sinners. We want to sin. We are born enjoying sin. We delight in sin. We delight then in what God hates. Titus 3, 3 says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is mankind, all of mankind, as they come into the world. Ephesians 2.3 similarly says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're born into this world corrupted to the core. We were slaves to the lusts of the flesh, slaves to various passions and desires, and even our minds were affected so that we didn't think rightly. We were born blind. We were born dead. We were born deceived. We were born darkened in our understanding. We were born depraved. And nothing that we can do is able to deliver us from that estate. In this state, according to Ephesians 2.3, we are children of wrath. It's like we belong to God's wrath. God's wrath is our father. It's our parent. We are, the text says, by nature, children of wrath. And so if you imagine some hateful creature, and I'm sure different ones of you would have different visions of what that is. For Jody, it would be snakes, but more wretched. Imagine a, a vile creature, the object of your wrath, something that you rightfully hate and despise. Their children, created in their image, would be children of wrath. You see, I don't, I don't think we understand properly how hateful sin is to God. It's contrary to every good thing that God delights in. Sin is contrary to God himself. And we are born into this world loving sin and desiring sin and and really resisting God and suppressing his truth and unrighteousness. We are born in that way and God eternally exists hating sin, despising sin, rightfully angry against sin and against sinners. And this is why all of mankind as we come into this world are called enemies of God, Romans 5.10. According to that section, Romans 5.6-10, we were helpless or, or weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, we were objects of wrath, we were enemies, and we needed to be reconciled to God. There was no peace between us and God. This is mankind before salvation. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is mankind from God's perspective. Hostile and alienated. Hostile in mind. Even our minds corrupted by sin. Doing evil. Thinking evil. Hateful to God. That is why we need grace and peace. Because we are at enmity. 
because we are hostile towards God, because we are alienated from him, separated from him, because there is no peace for us. And worse yet, there's nothing that we can do to deliver ourselves from that estate. Nothing that we can do to earn God's saving favor. Remember, it's unmerited favor, unearnable favor. And this is important here. Not even faith is enough, if I can put it that way. Faith itself does not appease God's wrath. Faith does not earn God's favor. Faith is essential, but we are not saved by faith as though our human act of believing is what saves us. And even as I say that, I feel a little bit uncomfortable kind of wording it this way, but, but hear me out here. Ephesians 2.8 says, and, and you could turn there if you want, but you probably have it memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing. It is, a, it is the gift of God. We are saved by grace, by God's grace. His favor is what does it. We are saved by Christ and we are saved by God. Again, Romans 5 and verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians 2.14 says, speaking about Christ, that he himself is our peace. And verse 16 continues by saying that he reconciled us to God through the cross. And so God saves by grace. Christ himself saves. He is our peace. He is the one who reconciles us to God through the cross. Again, grace means grace. It means unmerited favor. And salvation then is God's favor. And it's by God's favor. It's undeserved. It cannot be earned. And so if you think of faith as something that that you contribute to your salvation that somehow gives God uh, favor towards you, you're thinking about it wrong. God saves by grace and he does it through faith. And the whole thing, the, the saving, the grace, the faith is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And when God saves by grace, he works through faith. He brings us from unsaved to saved through faith. Or to keep it in the kind of Ephesians 2 context, God brings us from dead in sins to alive with Christ through the channel of faith, through faith. Faith is the thing that God uses to bring us from the one state to the other state. And so faith is like a riverbed that, that flows, that kind of flows, uh, that the water flows through to get from the mountains to the ocean. The water flows through the riverbed, but the water doesn't flow because of the riverbed. Gravity and, and melting water on the mountains cause the water to flow. The riverbed is the path that takes the water from the mountains to the sea. And similarly, faith takes us to the ocean of salvation, but it's not the cause of salvation. Faith is not the savior. Don't trust in something that, that you can do as a dead sinner or something that you think you can do. Trust in God who raises the dead. That's the point here is that we need to trust in God, not in our faith. I always, and I wasn't going to say this, but a Charles Spurgeon quote that I just really love is something along the lines of this. Never make a Christ of your faith. 
Christ is the Savior, and it's, it's in him that we're to trust, not to trust in our faith. God saves by grace through faith, and, and the channel that he uses to get us from the one to the other is faith, but we need to look to Christ. We need grace because without God saving grace, we will suffer eternal wrath in hell. There is no salvation apart from God's grace. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. This is what we can contribute to our salvation. We're all like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Don't trust in a polluted garment. Don't trust in your righteous deeds. Don't trust in your uncleanness to get you into the holiness of God's presence. We are all like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all like a leaf. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our righteousness is polluted because we ourselves are unclean. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And where do they take us to? They take us further into sin and ultimately to hell. And so we need grace and peace because only grace can give us peace with God. And only peace will restore our broken relationship with God. And so the next question then with those two as the foundation is, number three, how can God grant grace and peace? How can God grant grace and peace? Now, when we ask how can God grant grace and peace, it it might seem like a pointless question. But this is harder than many imagine. The world knows little about God, and if they think they know anything about God, it's this, that He is loving and merciful and that He would never punish their sin. They think forgiveness is a very easy thing, but it's the hardest thing of 10,000. When we ask how can God grant grace and peace, the first thing to deal with here is the, the fact that sin must be punished. God is holy as well as loving. He is just and he is merciful. God cannot just ignore sin any more than he could deny himself. God cannot be unjust, nor can he be unholy. And in the same way, God cannot not punish sin. Sin must be punished. To, for God to refuse to punish sin would be for him to deny himself on so many levels. He would have to deny his holiness. If he swept sin under a rug, he would have to deny his justice. He would have to deny his omnipresence. He is present when sin occurs. He is right there wherever sin occurs. He would have to deny his omniscience. God knows all sin. Wherever it occurs and whenever it occurs, he knows the evil motives of sin, then the secret sins and the hidden sins. God knows all sin and he knows it in his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. God would have to deny his righteousness to overlook sin. Second Thessalonians 1, 5, and 6 says, Christian suffering affliction is evidence of God's righteous judgment since God considers it just to repay the persecutors with justice. But even more than all that, if God did not punish sin, he would undermine his other attributes as well. 
How great would his patience be if sin were no big deal and easily overlooked? God's goodness towards sinners and common grace wouldn't be as good if, if sin wasn't that bad. Mercy wouldn't be so merciful. Grace wouldn't be as gracious. And I think we could almost go through every attribute of God and see how it would be diminished if God didn't punish sin. In punishing sin, God reveals His glory. Just as in, just as God reveals His glory in saving us from sin. Therefore, the question, how can God forgive sinners and at the same time remain just is an important question. And the answer, of course, is that Jesus took our punishment. And for this, I actually want you to even turn to Romans chapter 5. I want you to look at this passage. I've already kind of quoted to it and alluded to it a little bit, but look at Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. It says, Therefore, while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. He died for us though we were enemies. He died to pay the penalty for our sins so that a holy God could be just and at the same time declare us just. In the words of Romans 3.26, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. He came to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He came to make an atoning sacrifice on our behalf, one that would deliver us from God's wrath. 1 Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death is the basis for God's grace and peace. By Jesus' death, God's wrath against us is satisfied. And by Jesus' life and righteousness, God's righteous demands are satisfied. And we know this because Jesus rose from the dead, showing that God was satisfied with what he accomplished. And when what Jesus accomplished is applied to sinners, it's applied to us through a union that we have with Christ. We are joined together with Christ. We are married to him, we could say. The the church is the bride of Christ. And it's through this union that what belonged to us is counted as Christ's and what belonged to Christ is counted as ours. Our sin was punished in Christ on the cross as he bore God's wrath there in our place. And his righteousness is ours in Christ so that when God interacts with us, he treats us as righteous. He sees only Christ's righteousness when he looks at us. And this exchange of sin and righteousness is sometimes called the great exchange. 
It's also what we call justification. Justification means that God has declared us righteous in his sight, that God counts us as righteous in Christ. Justification is a gift of God's grace. Again, you could just look at it, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God can grant grace and peace because Jesus made it possible by his life and by his death. And so the fourth question then is this, how do we receive grace and peace? Number four, how do we receive grace and peace? And the first thing I want to remind you of here is the definition of grace. Remember, it's unmerited favor. This is something that is undeserved. It's something that is unearned and unearnable. Only God can grant this grace. Only God can bring you or me into this peace. This salvation requires even a change of nature. I must be changed, otherwise I won't be willing to come. Only God can join a sinner to Christ in this inseparable union. And all of the benefits of salvation are, are found in Him and in Him alone. And so in the first place, this knowledge that only God can show His grace, that God chooses whom He wants to favor, this should crush our pride and bring us to our knees. You cannot earn God's grace, but you can ask Him to be gracious to you. And the good news is, is that God delights to save sinners and He promises to save all who come to Him. God saves, as I said earlier, through faith. He opens blind eyes to understand their sin. He opens blind eyes to understand the danger that they are in, to understand the gospel and to see the glory of God and Christ. And He gives sinners the desire to follow Him. He raises, God does this, He raises the dead sinner to spiritual life and then He, and, and then they believe and then they see and then they turn from their sin. He raises them with Christ. He joins us to Christ and then we trust in Him. We trust in Him to deliver us and to save us from our sins. And then we confess Him and believe that God raised Him from the dead. Now, as much as all of this is God's doing, we also are responsible for our actions. God commands us to believe and we are commanded to turn from sin and trust in Christ. Acts 17 verse 30 says this, it says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed and, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God commands all people everywhere to repent or acts Chapter 16 and verse 30, um, the, the Philippian, the Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is a commandment to all people. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That's repentance. And then it says that he, that is the Lord, may have compassion on him and, ter- and, and to our God, that is return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I like what Spurgeon said once. He said, don't try to figure out all the mechanics of this before coming to Christ. Come to Christ and then study the mechanics of it if you're confused about it. God himself, he works through these commands to grant life and to open eyes and to draw people to faith in Christ. And if you have trusted in Christ and turned to him from sin, then you are forgiven and you've been justified and by grace you have peace with God. And so how do we receive these things? Well, we, we repent and believe. And we ask God to grant us that repentance and faith, that true salvation. We ask God to transform our hearts so that we want to follow Christ with all of our heart, soul, and life. That we want to live our lives for Him. And so then number five, having done that, how should we respond to grace and peace? What's the proper response to this? And the right response, if we received God's grace and peace, the right response, if we have peace with God, is praise. Worship is the proper response to salvation. A life of gratitude and thanksgiving. A life where every moment is seen as an opportunity to glorify our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to. If you've been saved, then God has favored you. God has reconciled you by the blood of his son. We are at peace with God. We are his children. He has adopted us into his family. We are at harmony with God. We are reconciled to him. We have a relationship with him. We know him. And so we are to praise him and live our lives to glorify him. The hostility is gone. Our sins are forgiven. Our inheritance is sure. Our Savior is great and our God will one day be all in all. Our privilege is worship both now and forever. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our lives in eternity doing. And that is our privilege even now to worship God for this great salvation that he has given us. This great freedom that he has given us. This deliverance from sin and wrath and hell. Worship is our privilege both now and forever. And so we asked five questions about grace and peace, and we saw what grace and peace are. We saw why we needed grace and peace. We were in great danger because God's wrath, because we were at at enmity with God. We saw how God can grant grace and peace through the sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw what we must do or what must be done to us to receive them. We must repent and believe the gospel and we saw that when we are saved when we have trusted in Christ we should respond with praise and thanksgiving every moment of our life should be a a a delighting in this God who has saved us and delivered us and together these questions should help us understand the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news that transforms sinners and makes us worshipers of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're going to sing now.
I forget what song. I think it's Hallelujah, What a Savior. But we're going to sing in response in worship. But let's just pray first. Father, we thank you for your grace and your peace. We thank you, Father, for that favor that you give us, even while we are your enemies, that you favor us with your grace and you draw us to yourself and draw us to your son and make us alive with him, join us to him in such a way that all of the benefits of salvation flow out to us. We thank you, Father, that through your son, Jesus Christ, we have peace with you, that we have entered into this grace in which we stand. We thank you for this this peace, not only that, that there's no more hostility, but there's actually harmony and, and friendship and even adopting us into your family as your children, Father. We thank you for this peace that you have given us from the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that this peace that we have with you then leads to peace all through our lives. As you even, by your grace, enable us to live for you. What an amazing grace that you save us and then help us to live as saved people in Christ. And so, Father, we ask now that your worship would be great in this place as we praise you for your salvation, for your grace and peace. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.